I'm Brett Tomlinson, the digital editor of the Princeton Alumni Weekly. And I am Greg Lang of the great class of 1970, who should know better. And welcome to Going Backstory, our Princeton history podcast. Uh, Greg, I had a nice conversation earlier today with a member of the freshman class who is writing his final project for a journalism class uh, about a bit of Princeton history that we've mentioned before, the admission of J.D. Osnott, who was not, uh, a fictional applicant born appropriately on April 1st and admitted with the, the Princeton class of 68. So it was nice to hear that there are students out there uh, still interested in that story, interested in kind of classic Princetoniana, and and it sounds like he's done some great research. We certainly uh, wish him well as he as he writes that story up before uh, Dean State. Very kind of you to mention that he is not a member of my grandchild class <laughs> because that would be obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> On the other hand, I've met uh, a number of the freshmen in uh, in connection with uh, class coordination with the class of '70, and they're a, a magnificent group of uh, magnificent group of I would call them kids. Uh, half of them seem bigger than I am. I think the football team must have gotten some good recruits. But anyway, <laughs> um, it, uh, men and women. I don't know what that means. But at any rate. Um, uh, good to see them involved in something like that. Not to mention um, the in, not to mention the interesting history because they were involved in it in the admission of our friend Joe Osnott um, with the class of 1967, which at the period this year uh, will be one of the most honored of the groups in the in the Grand March because they're the 50th reunion class this year. You think you think I'm out of sorts now as a grandparent. Wait till you see my 50th reunion. That's the class of 67 this year. And and this is our May episode, which means reunions is right around the corner. Time for you as the, the P-Raid MC to start gathering your uh, material uh, to fill the, the running commentary at the reviewing stand. And and I feel like I'm I'm setting you up for a uh, Lake Wobegon uh, comment here, but uh, are there any classes that that stand out for you among this year's uh, major reunion classes? It you know '67 is a great place to start, um, in part because uh, not only do they have a, a real major reunion, 50th reunion, for those of you who are younger. Uh, used to be the cutoff point for the old guard uh, before uh, great inflation took hold. Uh, now you don't make the old guard until your 65th reunion when you're like 87 years old and, and really getting up there. It used to be at the 50th, but there just got to be too many in the old guard. At any rate, 67 um, is one of those transitional classes which which I think sometimes we emphasize uh, not enough. Um, you have to put yourself in their place and figure that they started at Princeton uh, in September of 1963, uh, three months uh, before the assassination of John Kennedy. 
Um, and uh, and then while they were undergraduates, um, watched the emphasis on the Great Society, uh, the, the passing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, the construction from essentially nothing of Medicare, uh, by far the most transformative social program in the United States uh, since Social Security. Uh, and then in turn, uh, even before they graduated, uh, started to see the specter of Vietnam uh, looming not only on the horizon, but really advancing at them. There were I, I was sort of fascinated to figure it out. There were 82,000 uh, men drafted in the United States, which was the major way of stocking the armed services in that era. 82,000 men drafted in 1962. In 1966, the year before this gang graduated, there were 382,000 drafted, uh, almost five times the number, and clearly uh, the country was starting to wind uh, into a very, very uh, nerve-wracked form uh, from which it really only recovered uh, in the mid-1970s. Um, 67 had to live through all that stuff in almost an instant because when you're there for four years on campus, days seem to fly by. You never have enough time for sleep. Everything else is going on. And the world literally changed between the time when they stepped on campus and the day they graduated. Um, that can be a very disorienting uh, kind of feeling that can have an effect for years on classes. 67 is a very, very close class. Um, and I think they, uh, I think they reflect that in many ways. And then if, if that's the case, um, I was really giving some thought, uh, for a number of other reasons, a couple conversations I had recently about the class of 1942, which is this year's 75th reunion class. Now, again, if you do the math, that means most of these people are over 95 years old. There are still 37 of them who are alive, uh, which is remarkable in itself. Uh, they've always got a passel of people back at reunions, um, although, again, the age inflation has uh, pretty much ensured that nobody from 42 will win the class of 23 Kane for the oldest returning alum this year. We should think of it in context that the, the first time a Princetonian returned for their 75th reunion was only in 1961. Uh, the school went through well over 200 years before that even happened the first time. And now in the 75th reunion class, we have 37 people alive at their uh, at their 75th. I would bet you that eight or 10 of them at least will be back uh, very possibly more. Uh, there have been, uh, there were more than that, uh, over 20, as I recall, for their um, for their 70th. Now, this is a class that entered in 1938 in the middle of the second wave of the Depression. Um, 
that one year in witnessed the beginning of World War II on September 1st of their sophomore year. Six months before they graduated was Pearl Harbor. And they turned out to be the, the last traditional four-year class that entered in their case in 38 and graduated in 42 until the class of 1949, seven years later, uh, all the classes in the interim had people on accelerated courses graduating early, uh, leaving before they graduated to go into the service, coming in, going out, uh, appearing and vanishing for semesters here and there. Um, the class of 42 went through their regular four years and then 83% of them ended up in uniform uh, during World War II. 25 of them died in action. Uh, and this is, a, uh, this is a world that's so different from what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis that it's really difficult to describe to people. And uh, uh, they've, they've lived through it. They've triumphed over it. They've worked around it. Uh, and they've done many, many great things, uh, far too many to mention, uh, in terms of the classmates uh, of that wonderful class. Uh, even includes my, uh, my roommate's uh, father, who was a meteorology professor at Penn State after he got out of the service. Um, uh, it's wonderful to see 37 of them still around hopping. Uh, I don't pretend that I will be at age 97, and um, it's uh, it's great to see them back for their uh, for their 75th reunion uh, as part of the old guard. And I think it's a common experience for individuals to come into college and you know over the course of four years kind of leave quite different than they were as as freshmen but as you say it's it's not always the case that that classes you know enter in one world and graduate in another and and this th those are two examples where the changes are just so profound and and really interesting to think about um and and the 60s the 60s are a much more subtle set of questions um, than World War II or World War One or the Civil War, certainly. But um, in terms of the abilities of, uh, of individuals to come to grips with what's going on around them, it is certainly just as, uh, just as traumatic um, and just as thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. Moving on to uh, another topic issue. Uh, Greg, you have a, a new column uh, online, and it relates to free speech on campus. And coincidentally, uh, the May 17th issue includes an interview with Anthony Romero, class of 87, the executive director of the ACLU, in which he talks about you know, what he views as, as troubling trends on college campuses in terms of how visiting speakers are treated and, and how students approach viewpoints that are challenging to their own beliefs. Um, so I'm curious, in, in Princeton's history, what have been the sort of guiding principles when it comes to campus speech and, and guest speakers in particular? Well, the, uh, the sort of gold standard, which developed very early on, uh, 
is that uh, if a bona fide campus group, and it can be a fairly modest group, not always, you know, Wig Clio or some faculty department or whatever, uh, if a bona fide campus group invites someone to speak to them on campus, um, either as a private or a public event, that is honored. Um, it's been, uh, there have been kerfuffles over it, and uh, I talk about a few of those historically, although I should say that all in all, Princeton has been spared uh, from some of the worst of these adventures historically, uh, in part because of the uh, embodiment in one person of the very idea of American free speech, and that's Norman Thomas of the class of 1905, uh, who uh, the the great uh, uh, the great socialist of the 20th uh, century in in the classic sense, um, and um, someone so respected uh, throughout the campus, uh, not to mention uh, the country. Uh, that whenever anybody invited him on to speak, and he loved to come back, he was at every reunion he could possibly make, um, adored Princeton for all of what he perceived to be its flaws, um, that uh, he was a one-man free speech army. He would come in and speak about unions. He'd come in and speak about how urban housing. He'd come in and speak about minimum wages. He'd come in and speak about anything and everything. Uh, and, and everyone would show up and everyone would listen attentively to him. Uh, it actually created an aura um, that uh, made Princeton a real bulwark of free speech without actually intending to be, although uh, it's always been uh, part of the formal policy of the place, people really uh, have not abused that uh, much over the years at all. Uh, in recent years, um, and I tie this uh, in, and one of the major re reasons for the column is that uh, recent efforts uh, highlighted in, in PAW uh, the end of last year, I know, as well, by uh, professors Robert George and Cornell West on the right and the left uh, who uh, who deeply respect each other and have co-taught courses uh, to uh, encourage every kind of responsible free speech on the planet uh, have been sort of a voice crying in the wilderness in some of the craziness going on on college campuses these days. Uh, they tie directly to what um, Anthony Romero is talking about in his question and answer uh, with Bar Mark Bernstein, and it's really the driving reason why I wrote the column. Um, it ties in very much with the historical stances of Princeton. Uh, many alumni uh, know, either because they were there or from reputation, about the Alger Hiss speech in 1956 and the um, George Wallace speech in 1967, uh, both of which went on uh, unimpeded after a lot of hoop-de-doo uh, beforehand and even afterward. But um, uh, I 
don't think we can possibly overstate how much uh, Robbie George and Cornell West have done in a positive sense to really set the bar uh, for a, a current day interpretation of what free speech is and what free speech should be. Um, and I also would say in passing that the current statement uh, at Princeton in Rights, Rules, and Responsibilities, the, um, the student and faculty guidebook, uh, is, is brilliantly stated, unbelievably clear, uh, and very much in line with what, um, with, with what George and West are teaching. And everybody should read it, think about it, consider it historically, as I did, which is a lot of fun and makes you think about, um, you know, arguments around the water pump over the issues of the Civil War, not to mention what's going on today, um, and, uh, and really give some understanding to what free speech is, why it's so challenging, uh, and why it's so important. And it's a good column because it, it, it makes you realize that, as you say, that these issues are uh, most important when they're the most difficult. So uh, I, th I think uh, it's, I definitely encourage everyone to read that one. Uh, I encourage everyone to read all of Greg's columns. I don't want to say, say as if it's a special case in that way because they're, they're all great. But, uh, but this is really... Uh, timely and, and really, uh, well, it's a nice thing to reflect on and, and respond to. I, we always uh, welcome comments on the site, and I'm sure Greg would love to hear from you uh, as well. Um, before we vote, vote early and often. <laughs> before we say uh, goodbye, I, we should mention um, one more story from the May issue, uh, Gregory Hayworth class uh graduate class of 01 and the Lazarus project the su uh, su subject of a, a short feature piece uh he is using imaging science to restore damaged uh historical documents and while it isn't Princeton history it's a remarkable project in the in the larger world of of history and one that seems to have tremendous uh potential uh, I know it was Powerful, uh, powerful read uh, for you as well. You know, just while we're talking about this, I think uh, to the column I did a couple years back on Tony Morrison's notes, right, uh, which was an issue that uh, the uh, Princeton uh, archives were deeply involved in, and that was, uh, interestingly, an entirely different world because that was simply original material from her uh, various drafts of some of her major novels that happened to be on um, outdated computer disks for which, uh, for which new interpretive software actually had to be built. Uh, so that research could be done on her original work on various uh, interim versions uh, of her uh, of her writing, um, but that is very much the same question 
as what Gregory Hayworth is dealing. He's a classicist by training, uh, not a uh, not a computer uh, scientist at all, or alternatively any kind of um, uh, historical researcher. Um, but he's going back and trying to look at original documents from, and hold on to your seat, the fourth century A.D. Um, and finding uh, various overwritten things, various things that have been soaked in all kinds of liquids that we don't want to know about, various things that have been involved in wars um, and uh, desert storms and who knows what, uh, and that people are trying to uh, find various scientific ways to uncover in terms of their original meaning. Um, And what these both emphasize is the crucial importance historically to original documents. And when it comes right down to it, uh, and we live in a world uh, of the web with an infinite number of interpretive statements on all sorts of truisms and falsisms, uh, as we've uh, figured out uh, recently to a fairly well, certainly. And the the import of the original materials of where these ideas and issues and people come from becomes even more important as they become uh, more covered with layers of interpretive history. Uh, and if you if you look at it not as a biochemical adventure, but as something in the uh, something in the quest of people to try and come up with true meaning. Um, to to where these ideas began, it, it becomes this gigantic mystery story that is just riveting, uh, almost every day in almost every way. And um, I thought the uh, I thought Josephine Wolf, who wrote the article uh, on uh, Gregory Hayworth, di- did a magnificent job of of showing that. But it it extends to so many different kinds of platforms and issues and ideas uh, and interpretive fields in this day and age that it's almost hard to grasp. You have to sort of sit there and think about all the um, all the ways in which uh, in which that's important uh, and you and you realize how immediate these things can be and how important they are to the the quality of uh, of how we live our lives. Well, we like we like to think that history matters, and and uh, certainly does in these cases. Um, Greg, I think that that wraps it up for the May episode. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at reunions, and hopefully some of our listeners as well. Absolutely, and uh, we'll report next month on uh, precisely how many people uh, wander down to the P raid, because as we all know, it never rains on the P raid. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't trick us. <laughs> and we remind you that uh, Going Backstory is a podcast from the Princeton Alumni Weekly Online. <laughs>